welcome to the Next Well Podcast with uh, Rob Nixon. I'm your host, and today I have the pleasure of uh, having as my guest uh, author and professor Jackie Davis, who's professor of environmental history at the University of Florida and author of Everglades Providence and Race Against Time, and that's just in Mississippi. And of course, his Pulitzer Prize winning The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, which is why I have him on the show today. Um, I have read many, many books on the coast, uh, done by many experts. And uh, you know, my favorites have been and included uh, the Pilkies, of course. But this book is different. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's good for the layman, and it's it's good for the, for a person because it's written. I, I would classify it as a historical and environmental epic novel. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, hello to you. Your book is is uh, very vast in what it covers as far as the Gulf. I mean, you start all the way back with the uh, Soto and Cabeza de la Vaca, and um, in Texas, that story is very well known. I don't know how well known it is around the rest of the Gulf Coast, because um, Cabeza de Vaca spent eight years basically wandering around Texas. Um, and then you bring it all the way to modern times, and you you cover everything from the early inhabitants to the European discovery, which we just talked about, um, the general environmental and ecological layout, uh, the fisheries, um, birding, birding populations, uh, oil exploitation, uh, industrial and uh, vacation and recreation development, and even coastal erosion. And you do it in such a way that it's a page turner. Um, the, the prose in your book is, is just fascinating. Um, and I would... And it's all woven together with these stories of real-life characters and the challenges they face on both sides um, of each issue. And I think that's what draws the entire book together. Um, my, my first question to you is, uh, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I, I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico, and so um, I have this intimate, lifelong relationship uh, with with the sea. And the when I finished the book on the, the Everglades, which is a biography of both the Everglades and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the uh, the environmentalist who uh, really launched the movement to try to save the Everglades. The um, when I finished that book, I, I recognized that there was a need uh, uh, for a book, a comprehensive history of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and because I grew up on the Gulf and, and have that intimate relationship with it, it seemed like uh, writing this book would be a, a good fit uh, for me. Um, and, you know, ultimately it turned out to be a, a pretty good fit. Uh, it, was a, it was a labor of love to write it. It was a real privilege to write about the sea that I love, that we love. Um, but also, I, I recognize that uh, the American public has this very narrow understanding of, of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, people beyond the Gulf, even a lot of Gulf siders, don't know much about uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And the popular image, the national popular image, is, is of the Gulf is this place that um, provides us with a, 
um, you know, our oil <laughs> so we can drive our cars. Uh, and it's also a place that's uh, constantly racked by devastating hurricanes. And, uh, and so I wanted my readers to know that the Gulf is much more than that. It's this uh, rich sea, this wonderful sea uh, that has a very rich history that's part of the, the American historical narrative. Um, and, uh, and so part of the problem uh, with the Gulf's image is has um, rest with, with historians who have almost completely written the Gulf out of American history. You can pick up any um, history textbook, U.S. history textbook, and there's a good chance the Gulf of Mexico won't even be mentioned. And if it is, it's only mentioned in passing. Um, and uh, I wanted my readers to know that uh, all Americans are connect whether they live beside the Gulf or not, all of them are connected to the Gulf, both historically and ecologically. So you you refer to the Gulf as a forgotten sea, and I understand completely why. I, I think you, you just touched on that. I mean, other than it, especially now in, well, especially now in the political climate we're in, it, it's, it's only referred to as basically an energy coast. Um, and people forget that it is an amazing ecological treasure that provides both recreational, uh, commercial, and and everything else in between uh, opportunities for people that 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 want to that want to you know highlight that and, and take part in that. And um, but yeah, we we've been basically boiled down to to an oil coast um, because of. The, the ports we have on it, and we only really hear about it, except uh, we only hear about it in events of either a, you know, oil spill or hurricane, which is happens to threaten the oil industry. Is that correct? I, I think that's that's largely true. Uh, you know, of course, over here in, in the Florida side, we don't have oil. Uh, we, we have tourism, but we, we certainly have our, our share of hurricanes, and that's what draws draws attention, uh, national attention to, to the Gulf of hurricanes and oil spills um, uh, for the most part. What people don't realize is that the Gulf of Mexico is, is one of the richest commercial fisheries in the United States. It outperforms uh, the entire East Coast in many years. Uh, and uh, and that's really remarkable. You know, it's a it's a twenty plus billion dollar uh, industry, um, uh, it, at least along the five U.S. states. Uh, and the and the, the the recreational fishing industry is uh, a five to ten billion dollar fishing industry, um, and that's that's pretty that's quite a bit. That's significant revenue, and the reason is because the Gulf is one of the uh, richest estuarine uh, environments in the world. There's some 200 estuaries around the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and, uh, and, and, and of course, those estuaries are what make the Gulf productive, but they also connect us to the rest of the country because what creates those estuaries are the, is the fresh water uh, that comes down the rivers flowing to the Gulf, the nutrients are coming down uh, those rivers, um, but also what hurts those estuaries and ultimately harms the Gulf ecologically and commercially is uh, is the, the the pollution that comes down those rivers uh, and um, uh, and destroys those those estuarine environments or the the local oil spills and it's not just the offshore as you know 
uh, oil spills that uh, are the problem. It's the inshore infrastructure, uh, which on a daily basis uh, damage our our waters and, and our estuaries. Um, and it's amazing that they are as healthy as they are. And they are because we've taken steps to, to protect them. There's more we can do, uh, but we've shown that we can uh, we can protect these estuarine environments. Um, and, uh, and, and the people who live along the Gulf uh, clearly value them and do want to protect them. I totally agree. I, I've met many, many people that, you know, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, um, if they are a fisherman, if they're a hunter, if they're a surfer like I am, or they just love going to the beach, or they just love being on the coast, um, they're all in on on preserving that as much as they can. And I think that's uh, that's a message that's been lost a lot in our political climate. We were talking about oil right now, but in your book, you cover many different aspects of threats that have that have hit the Gulf Coast in the past. Um, all the way from overfishing tarpon to uh, to, to birding um, back uh, when uh, McGillihenny uh, started his conservation movement. And um, I was wondering if you could touch on a few of those stories where we, we've hit those we've we, we've hit those those instances and we've recovered from them. And um, we can learn from them. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I learned a lot in writing this book, which is, as you mentioned, covers the period from geological formation to the present, uh, focusing on the five U.S. states. Uh, one thing I learned is that it wasn't the beaches that launched the tourism trade on, on the Gulf of Mexico. It, it was fishing, and it was a particular fish, and that was the tarpon. Uh, and in the late 19th century, in 1885, a New York architect was the first person on record to hook a tar- tarpon. Uh, and, and, and when he did so, and that was over by Fort Myers, and when he did so, it set the sport fishing community on fire and people from the northeast, the Midwest, and the British Isles converged on the Gulf of Mexico, the southern waters, primarily Florida and southern Texas, uh, to catch these tarpon. They were in a course, they could spend two weeks on the Gulf, uh, and they were they could catch a couple of dozen tarpon. Uh, and ultimately, by the turn of the century, they had overfished many of the tarpon grounds. But this attracted the first tourists who then discovered the beautiful beaches along or at least parts of the Gulf Coast. Uh, Texas has beautiful beaches. It's multicolored beaches. Florida has its its uh, quartz sand beaches that are, are pure white, which are uh, complements of the Appalachian Mountains, by the way. That's where uh, that quartz comes from, has over the eons. And... Um, uh, and so eventually the beaches were discovered and uh, uh, gave us this um, uh, uh, this unsurpassed uh, tourist industry uh, along along the Gulf Coast. Um, and but at the same time, people were fishing for tarpon. Commercial hunters uh, were shooting uh, the, the plume birds, the, the egrets and the, uh, the white ibis and the herons and, and the rosette spoonbills for the women's hat fashion industry. And in parts of the Gulf, they reduced the egret population by up to 90 percent, which is phenomenal. As you mentioned, Edward McElhaney of um, uh, Tabasco fame, his father invented Tabasco sauce and McElhaney, Edward, made the company into what it is today. 
um, was one was an early bird conservationist and uh, uh, founded um, some of the earliest um, uh, bird sanctuaries in 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 the country. And and just a fascinating character to write about. I loved writing about Edward Avery McElhaney. He was he, he was a he was a a, a real force, um, but um, uh, an, an interesting. Uh, character and I, and I, in fact I call the human subjects in my book uh, characters because um, I use them to help drive the narrative and they they uh, they do have these interesting stories as as, as you had mentioned. Yeah, I, I think that the characters you you bring out in the book are just I mean the, you can see both sides of their stories and it it it, it draws the entire narrative together and I, I think that's one of the greatest parts of the book. Um, the uh, so. If I'm right, he he basically started with two nesting uh, couples of egrets and then moved on from there. Is that on, on his yeah, island? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, Avery Island, where he grew up, I mean, he knew these birds, uh, the rookeries um, um, growing up and saw them disappearing uh, or saw the bird population uh, disappearing on Avery Island and other parts of the Louisiana coast. Uh, and so he created essentially a giant bird cage uh, to to protect a couple of nesting couples. Um, and when it came time for him, for them to migrate, um, he he let them go and hoped that they came back. And indeed, they they returned the next year, uh, and they successfully had successful uh, nests. And uh, and each year after that, more and more. Uh, came back to Avery Island and, uh, you know, he kept hunters away. He created uh, sanctuaries on other parts of the Louisiana coast. Uh, and today you can go to Avery Island and that rookery still exists, that sanctuary that he created. And there, there are the, the descendants of those original egrets that uh, he protected. Um, really? Wow. Uh, live part of the year on, on Avery Island. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. And of course, in, in Texas, you have, you had Connie Hager, uh, yep. who was this uh, so-called uh, kitchen birder, you know, or, or housewife birder, and uh, knew more about uh, birds of Texas than virtually anybody. Uh, this is, of course, in the early and mid-20th century, and was dismissed by the male ornithologists. Um, and, uh, uh, but, uh, and, and until... Um, uh, and until eventually they realized that um, she uh, knew what she was talking about. Um, and, and, and of course, the birding trail, the great Texas birding trail, um, uh, dates back to her original birding trail. Uh, and, and that generates, you know, that, that birding industry along the Texas coast generates significant tourist dollars for, for the state of Texas. One of the most interesting facts of the book, as far as the birding goes, um, is that at one point, an ounce of plumage was going more than an ounce of gold, if I'm correct in stating that. Yeah, that's right. And so you, why wouldn't there be hunters, uh, commercial hunters, converging on the Gulf of Mexico? Of course they would. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, some of these rookeries around the, uh, the Gulf Coast um, uh, held uh, tens of thousands, even some of them a hundred thousand birds. 
And so a couple of hunters uh, or a hunter and a, and a couple of helpers could go into one of these rookeries, spend a couple of days and wipe the, the entire rookery out. And that happened all, you know, wrong all along the Louisiana coast, Texas coast, and the Florida coast. Um, it was hor- horrific. So adding to this pressure, we are we, we have now, uh, uh, I, I guess you would call it uh, vacational homes or vacation homes coming in. And that actually started out as getting away from the cities, if I'm correct, uh, from summertime diseases such as malaria and stuff like that. And they, they would come out. And, and and stay on the coast, the, the families could afford it. And they weren't really there for what the coast could provide them, but just to get away from the city. Is that is that correct? Yeah, and yellow fever is really... Oh, okay. yellow fever, Other sorry. Cities was, it was the principal disease they were trying to escape. Um, and uh, um, it, particularly from a place like New Orleans, seaports. Seaports were, were the places that were most susceptible uh, to um, uh, epidemics or, uh, you know, or yellow fever. And because, you know, there's this constant exchange in seaports with the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, and so, as you said, the people afford it. This is the beginning of the 19th century uh, would, would would go to the coast. Um, and uh, where, of course, it was uh, they had the sea breezes. They had recreational opportunities and uh, uh, and, and enjoyed the coast. Yeah. Um, so as, as far as modern development versus then, um, I mean, you do cover quite a bit, uh, especially in Florida, the 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 the, uh, the land scammers and stuff like that. They were they're trying to develop these these big, huge pieces of, of uh, coastal development um, versus the original uh, recreational or or. Or second home people, uh, how would you compare them? Um, as far as I mean, were they were these the newer guys selling a dream and just trying to make a quick buck, and and as today kind of goes, uh, cash out and leave is before anything bad could happen. I think uh, there were a lot of people doing that. Yes, yeah. uh, selling a dream, uh, and uh, you know, in the in the 20th century, they began. Uh, making land, <laughs> making more waterfront with dredge and fill projects. And matter of fact, the the, the great uh, crime thriller writer of the 20th century, John D. McDonald, uh, who lived in Sarasota, Florida, uh, who was horrified by the dredge and fill projects because he saw what they were doing to the estuarine environment. Um, uh, he he said Florida is the only state in the country that was growing in size. Uh, and uh, uh, because of those dredge and fill projects, we're creating more real estate, waterfront real estate. Uh, but also by the 20th century, particularly after uh, World War II, you know, uh, building technology allowed uh, developers to stack people higher and higher along the shorelines and in condominiums, which uh, um, puts uh, a stress on the natural resources in the area. Uh, it, it, you know, of course, it uh, it crowded uh, parts of the of the of the Gulf Coast uh, and um, uh, created issues with uh, infrastructure and 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 uh, wastewater uh, discharge and stormwater um, and 
in you know in the post World War II period, there was a general trend around the country of the population moving to uh, to uh, uh, oceanside or seaside counties um, and uh, uh, to the coast, uh, not just on, along the Gulf of Mexico, um, but uh, both the East Coast and, and the West Coast. But the the, the Gulf of Mexico uh, was one of the fastest growing. Uh, regions of the country uh, after World War II, and uh, and unfortunately, um, again, going back to those estuarine environments that are so vital uh, to the health of the Gulf of Mexico, and again to us economically and ecologically, uh, they, they they were they were stressed considerably. Um, mainly from wastewater, raw sewage that was being dumped into the, the bays and the lagoons and the bayous. And virtually every uh, um, waterside or, or coastside municipality was dumping raw sewage uh, into the waters late as the, the 1960s, early 1970s, um, destroying many of these these estuaries uh, around the Gulf, the, uh, they were losing 60, 70, 80 percent of these their seagrass beds, some of the bays around the Gulf Coast. In the case of the Scambia Bay in Pensacola, 95 percent of its seagrass beds, uh, mainly because of wastewater. But the wastewater, I want to emphasize, Rob, and this is one of these connections, I, I, I ecological connections I mentioned earlier, uh, it wasn't just um, uh, coastal communities that were dumping raw sewage. It was communities from far away were dumping raw sewage into the rivers that ran to the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Uh, and uh, there are um, somewhere around 70 rivers that run through the Gulf, uh, U.S. Gulf states down to the Gulf of Mexico. Draining, I should point out, uh, well over 60 percent of the lower U.S. from as far away as... Western New York to the Dakotas to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and so what is it? Whatever is put in those rivers that flows to the Gulf makes it away to the Gulf, and if it's bad, it'll do its damage. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Dune Doctors, a excellent, outstanding hub vendor, Dune Restoration Company out of Pensacola, Florida. Led by the brilliant Frederic Barrasset's superb work from permitting design through construction on shoreline projects. If you're in the business of managing property on the Gulf of Mexico or up the Atlantic's seaboard, Dune Doctors is a great company to reach out to. Find Frederic and her team at dunedoctors.com. Dunedoctors.com. Totally see that. I, I researched a lot of our watersheds. Um, especially the Mississippi watershed that seems to dump everything um, into the Gulf. And, of course, we have the, the big dead zone that, that exists there that expands and shrinks is, depending on what comes down it. Uh, in fact, I mean, uh, we had Hurricane Ike, I believe it was, uh, that hit up in Galveston, which is 250 miles along the coast from us, 300 miles. And we were, we were getting... Uh, everything from there and then when uh, Katrina hit uh, you know Louisiana you know I, I actually found a uh, an old uh, uh, grave uh, grave roof that, that floated down here and sent it back to, to Louisiana to the family um, it is amazing how much comes out from the rivers and into the in the Gulf and then ends up on our beaches um, when, when when we're talking about um, 
how would you or is it even possible to compare the original or not the original but the the prehistoric inhabitants are pre i guess uh it would be pre uh, european inhabitants of the gulf coast compared to uh Current inhabitants, uh, how they treated the coast. If, can you? Is there even a way to compare them, or is it just yeah, different, different cultures? One of the most obvious is population size, um, right. and we can only guess. And, and of course, um, archaeology and anthropology is constantly revising population uh, pre-Columbian population numbers in in North America, but. Um, there were maybe 400,000 people living around the Gulf, uh, the U.S., which, uh, present-day U.S. Gulf Coast, uh, before the Spanish arrived. Um, you know, and today we have 20 to 20-some-odd 20 million, 22 million, something like that, living around uh, the Gulf, U.S. Gulf Coast. Uh, so, obviously, the more people I have, the, the more impact, more stress you'll have on uh, the, the environment. We live differently. We live more artificially. Uh, today we burn fossil fossil fuels. We we mine those sources, um, and uh, and uh, we uh, we fish for recreation, not just for food. Um, we um, and we fish much more heavily uh, commercially uh, than um, uh, we we did, and uh, uh, technology uh, allows that. Uh, there are many, many responsible fishing people out there, I should say, commercial fishers uh, and sport fishers who very much care about the Gulf. Uh, and um, so I'm not trying to point any any fingers, but the um, and, but we also create significant more waste, not just uh, raw sewage. We, we now, you know, all these municip- municipalities around the Gulf of Mexico and throughout the U.S., got their act together in, in the 1970s after the Clean Water Act um, and um, uh, built new, um, more efficient, more effective uh, wastewater treatment plants. Uh, and that has helped bring uh, the seagrass beds um, back to life around the Gulf Coast. But what we have today is we, we and many of the uh, industries um, uh, discharging toxins into the Gulf Coast have, have cleaned up their act as well. But the, the, the principal culprit today, unfortunately, is agricultural runoff uh, coming from far away, very far away places and also from near places. Again, there are many farmers and ranchers are, are, are models that responsibility um, when it comes to protecting the environment because they love it as much as the rest of us do. Um, but, um, they're, um, uh, but there, there are many that are not so responsible, just like any other, uh, American citizen, um, who is not always most responsible when it comes to, um, uh, caring for the environment, which is not just for birds and fish. It's also for us. Because that health of the environment is a measure of our quality of life. It's not just a measure of the health of the, the wildlife population. It's very much a measure of our, our, our quality of life. Everybody benefits from clean water, as you know. Nobody benefits from dirty water, from polluted water. Not even, I'm, I'm sorry, not even um, the... Um, the stakeholders in uh, in the uh, the the interests that do, uh, are behind the pollution. Um, ultimately, we're all much better off with clean water. 
Well, I totally agree. Um, so I guess going with that, um, do you, do you believe that it, that, uh, wastewater and our watersheds are regulated enough as far as runoff goes? Um, and what are your thoughts on possibly the EPA? Well, they've already done it. Drawing back the uh, the uh, the Clean Water Act and 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 making it a lot looser than what it was under. Yeah, I, I I think that undermining the props of the Clean Water Act, um, uh, backing off on enforcement uh, when good laws are in place, are huge mistake. Uh, that we're all, we will all have to pay for it eventually. We did once. You know, again, these waters were around the Gulf of Mexico were unbearable by the 1960s, by 1970. You know, I grew up fishing in Tampa Bay. Uh, and about the only thing we could catch when I was a kid was a croaker or, if you're really lucky, a, a speckled trout. Uh, and you didn't see any bird life other than than pelicans, brown pelicans, and gulls. Um, but when we cleaned up those waters, and everybody pitched in, industry, uh, local, state, federal, national uh, policy uh, makers, lawmakers, uh, local citizens, um, everybody pitched in to clean up these waters, and we all benefited. And now, and, and those those waters are are, are vibrant with life. There are bird, there's bird life on Tampa Bay I never saw as a kid. Uh, and um, uh, so, I, I think it's unfortunate that hey, look, you can go around the Gulf, and there's some places where um, the Gulf is in the water is in really great shape. Uh, the watershed is not so offensive uh, to those areas, and then, but then you can go to some other places, um, and for instance, the coast of Louisiana, um, where the estuarine environment is really hurting, uh, and the land is shrinking as, as well. Um, and uh, it's not a time to go backwards uh, and diminish our quality of life. And that's what happened in the late '60s. We recognized that our own quality of life had. Been, uh, had been greatly affected by, by dirty water. Um, but I have hope. I mean, because we, we, um, we came through before, we cleaned up these bays and these lagoons and these, these bayous. Um, we turned them healthy again, and I, I think we can do it. Uh, again, unfortunately, I, I think that, and I don't like to get political, but the, the, the current administration... <laughs> Uh, presidential administration has demonstrated time and time again um, that it doesn't care about a healthy environment. What it cares uh, about is simply the bottom line, but it's but they're wrong. What they're looking at is the immediate bottom line. Healthy ecosystems, healthy estuaries are more economically productive than ailing estuaries. Uh, there's study after study after study all around the world uh, that, that have demonstrated that. Um, uh, dirty water does not, in the long run, do not, does not lead to a healthy economy. Well said. Um, so, <laughs> kind of going off that, um, I, I guess some critics have, have, have uh, they've sort of classified this as a doomsday gulf book. 
I don't see it that way. And I've seen other people that, that agree with me. Um, I, I think you kind of lay it all out there. And, uh, but, but towards the end, there, there, there's hope at the end. So um, maybe we can reverse on what you just said and, 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 and maybe put out, you know, some hope as far as, as the, 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 the Gulf is concerned. As, yeah. As thanks as, for recognizing that because yeah. uh, I, I, I wasn't. I didn't want to write a, a screed. Um, I didn't want to write a doom and gloom history. And uh, it was important uh, for me to, to me, to end on a, a positive note. And I end the book uh, with with Cedar Key as a, in Florida is a great success story uh, that um, is economically dependent upon clam aquaculture. Uh, it had more or less lost its livelihood in the 1990s when Florida voters supported a uh, gillnet fishing ban uh, in Cedar Key as a, as a, a fishing community, commercial fishing community, that, um, and a lot of people who had been, families had been fishing for generations were put out of business because of that gillnet ban. Uh, but the state of Florida, the University of Florida, and others stepped in to develop a clam aquaculture industry there. And when they did, not only is Cedar Key more economic, economically healthy than when it uh, than during the compared with the gillnet fishing days, the waters are cleaner because to have a um, a, a, a vibrant uh, aquaculture or clam industry, you've got to have clean waters. Um, and so the waters around uh, Cedar Key uh, got off septic tanks. They shut down all their septic tanks and created, uh, developed a, a central water treatment system. Uh, the Suwannee River, which uh, flows down into uh, the, um, the estuary environment around Cedar Key, was, was cleaned up. Uh, and, uh, and this is a politically conservative place. Uh, and, um, uh, and, but these people are rabid about, uh, uh, keeping their waters clean and they've benefited, uh, both again, ecologically and economically. It's been a great success story. And again, going back to clean up those bays and bayous around the Gulf coast after the passage of the clean water act in 1972 is another great success story. And there are groups around the Gulf of Mexico, virtually every body of water, around the Gulf of Mexico has at least one group working to protect it. Um, and uh, many of them have multiple groups uh, uh, working to protect it. And, and a lot of caring people um, who um, want clean waters, who, who want to, uh, a healthy Gulf, um, there are people, as you mentioned earlier, on both aisles, sides of the aisle in the state legislatures around the Gulf Coast who support um, uh, an ecologically uh, healthy uh, Gulf of Mexico. There's great movement. There are people are recognizing, have recognized that the mo- some of the most vulnerable, vulnerable metropolitan areas to in the country to sea level rise are on the Gulf Coast. Five of the top ten are on the Gulf Coast, um, and there are many institutions that have taken steps to um, restore the living coastline. Um, oyster beds, um, uh, coastal marshes, uh, mangrove forests, uh, and those are our best defenses against sea level rise. Is restoring the living coastline um, because they are our best defense against 
um, uh, intense seas. Uh, they um, are, of course, habitat and nursery ground for marine life. And but it's not just win-win, Rob. There are three wins here. They are they're also fantastic carbon sinks. They absorb carbon out of the air and out of the water. Uh, now, when you build a concrete seawall, uh, you're destroying an you're destroying a natural environment. You're creating concrete which discharges carbon for up to a thousand years. It doesn't absorb carbon. Um, where and you're creating something that contributes to shoreline erosion. Uh, doesn't prevent shoreline erosion like the living shoreline does. I, I completely agree. As far as seawalls go, I, all they do is exacerbate erosion. As far as beaches go, I mean, I that, that's that's all I do. Yeah. Um, so that's and, what gives me, that's what gives me hope because uh, I think we're moving in that direction. There are universities that are, are leading this uh, that are are um, um, leading the cause for uh, restoring the living shoreline. There are municipalities that are doing that. There are municipalities that are spending their BP BP money doing that. Yes, exactly. Uh, and there are there are private waterfront uh, um, uh, owners who are also restoring the living shoreline in front of their homes, uh, and they're reaping great rewards from that. Fishing is better, and man, what do you get? You get bird life as well. Uh, well, you, get to, you get to enjoy what you what you're there for the coast. I mean that that's what you're there for, right? It's enjoy yeah, all the stuff right. it has to provide. Yeah. County. Right. Uh, I I deal with that. Uh, I'm I'm on a city committee that deals with that every day, and and we we try our best to to keep within the the working structure of the environment and the ecology here, and it's it's been it it to watch. Uh, I've been doing this for I don't know 15 years at this point. As far as paying attention to the coast and what's going on, the processes and different, you know, issues, and it, it's been a, it's been a great experience to watch it go from armor, armor, armor to more living shorelines, more more restoring what's there and what should be there, than than going and and putting more concrete out there, and I think this book does a great job of pointing that out and making it apparent why we need to do it. Um, so we've talked a couple times about uh, how you you take uh, multiple characters in this, and, and you you cover everybody from from uh, from business people to fishermen to uh, oyster oyster fishermen to, to artists, um, and and it, it seems like in almost every chapter you you have that that person that character there to. to kind of illustrate what you're talking about. Um, what would be your favorite person you you covered in this book and, and why? Well, I, I have to say or people. There <laughs> I have many I have many favorites, but if I had to choose one I I'd have to say it was Walter Anderson, um, uh, the, the Mississippi artist um, who lived in mid uh, 20th, uh, early and mid uh, 20th century, spent most of the last 20 years of his life on the barrier islands um, off the coast of Mississippi and Louisiana, primarily Horn Island, died in 1965. And uh, his, his art is, well, he's really the, the painter laureate of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but he also kept these wonderful 
uh, uh, island logs um, when he was on places like Horn and the Chandeliers and um, uh, so-called uninhabited islands, but they were not uninhabited to him. They were just teeming with life. And of course, it was wildlife. Um, and uh, and it, he is uh, the narrative device in chapter 12 on barrier islands. And that was the very first chapter I wrote for the book because I was familiar with Walter Anderson before I started the book. And I knew about Walter Anderson's love of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the natural Gulf of Mexico. And I knew he would show me the way into the book. He would show me how to write it. Uh, and when I finished chapter 12, I said, I knew that this is how I, the book needed to be written or the other chapters need to be written um, uh, much like that, that particular chapter. Uh, so, and I've spoken at the Walter Anderson Museum of Art in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, three times since the book came out. Highly recommend a visit there. It's just a wonderful museum. Uh, you're drawn immediately into uh, Walter Anderson's Gulf of Mexico world. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and the enthusiasm um, along the Mississippi, everywhere I go to speak about the Gulf of Mexico, um, the enthusiasm, the gushing love for the sea is is uh, is uh, is clearly evident. Uh, you know, I've spoken in Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Chicago, uh, all the Gulf states on the Gulf, away from the Gulf, and wherever I go, people are just very, very excited to learn about the Gulf of Mexico, um, and, uh, uh, and 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 just. Again, the gushing love for the Gulf of Mexico uh, is clearly evident everywhere I go. GI Coastal Services in Wilmington, North Carolina, one of the great boutique-focused engineering companies that has very successfully implemented shoreline strategies up and down the eastern seaboard, smart, cost-conscious, great company, TI Coastal Services. You can find them at ticoastal.com. Calm. If, if okay, so Walter Anderson was one of my favorite parts of the book for sure. Um, he is—he actually camped through a hurricane on an island, correct? Is that right? And then also came Betsy. Yeah, and then when he he passed away, I believe it was his wife that went into his workroom and found a wall-to-wall mural of his island. Is that correct? Uh, of the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. Yeah. Uh, wildlife around the, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, she walked into his little, he lived separately, lived in a little house, which was also his studio. Uh, and there was this one locked room um, that she had never been in. And she walked in and, uh, you know, walls and ceiling were a mural of of a day in the life of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and that's now in the in the museum. Really? The Walter, yes, the Walter Anderson Museum, Anderson Museum in Ocean Springs. Uh, again, uh, it's I highly recommend it. Now, among my favorite Texas characters was uh, is Diane Wilson. Oh, um, nice, yes. You know, who lived on Lavaca Bay, uh, a shrimp fisher, multi generation shrimp fisher, um, and uh, fish house operator. Uh, and uh, you know, challenged multinational corporations to stop polluting the, the waters uh, and ruining the economic 
livelihood of uh, the fishing people um, uh, in that area, but also destroying the, the, the health of the people in that, in that area. Um, and uh, she was very creative. She was uh, had very little support uh, from from locals, uh, and uh, but she. Uh, but she persevered, and and she she largely succeeded. Uh, really remarkable what she was able to accomplish in going up against the, these big multinational corporations. Uh, she was a heavy hitter, and she did a lot of really good stuff for Texas. I think it's a, mostly forgotten in Texas. Uh, well, environmental history in Texas is mostly ignored, but um, this book brings it out on throughout all the states, including, I mean, Louisiana, one of the hardest ones to bring out too, as well. Um, so I, I guess, um, what was the overall purpose in, 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 in writing the book other than just having a, it's, 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 it's definitely a comprehensive history of the Gulf, but, and, and I think maybe, maybe this is it, but, you can tell as you read through the pages how much you care about it and what you want people to know, but I, I would just like to hear it in your own words. Um, well, again, I, I, as I said earlier, I really wanted, you know, a principal objective was to, I, I always envisioned my readers as being a national audience, not, not just a regional audience, certainly not an academic, only an academic audience. And, and, and again, I wanted uh, readers to know that uh, the Gulf of Mexico is um, is this vital living, giving sea that um, has a prominent place in American history that's been ignored by historians, and then is a place that's uh, much more valuable uh, to us than um, a, a mere oil sump or oil supplier. Um, and um, but but at the same time, I, I wanted the people to know that um, there is hope um, that uh, there are lessons we can learn from the from the Gulf of Mexico that we can apply to uh, elsewhere. Um, and uh, I mean, for instance, in in, in over here in the um, on the Florida side this summer and well into the fall, we suffered from what people were calling red tide. Right. Uh, and it was devastating to the uh, the economy, um, but also to the health of people. And um, and I argue that in in the book and elsewhere, not to call it red tide because red tide is a natural phenomenon, and that um, uh, so we blame nature when we have these these algae blooms, which are uh, as much caused by, if not more so, by human activities. But they aren't just something on the Gulf Coast. The um, the uh, the lake region in upstate New York this summer, uh, the lakes up there were suffering from harmful algae blooms. People couldn't swim in the lakes. Um, where I have a summer home in New Hampshire, we are having the same issue um, uh, the, this summer. And so, what I wanted my readers to do is to um, reconsider. The way we relate to the environment, sometimes, uh, and to understand that the natural environment is our home, as much as it is the home of, of wildlife. Uh, and when we um, when we foul that home, we're fouling our own nest. Right. Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, red tide goes, I mean, uh, 
Caridia brevis was the actual organism that, that causes it, or uh, that is it, I guess you could say. Uh, we deal with that here in South Padre Island every few years, and uh, nothing quite as extreme as what happened in Florida, but we've, we've had pretty close events. And uh, I think one of the most interesting uh, stories from that is, I think in 2005, I believe it was, we had a really big event uh, to the point it was, you know, it was so, so massive that it was killing plants and stuff like that. And uh, coyotes are dying because they're eating the fish, fish, dead fish on the beach and all this other stuff. And uh, people's dogs are dying for doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, it, it, it disappeared and it kind of moved into our back bay and then it got up to where we have a freshwater source come in called the Arroyo Colorado and it exploded again for another almost a year. And, uh, we had, uh, people from Texas A&M researching it and they, their conclusion became that, you know, it was, uh, you know, nitrate runoff from, from farms that was feeding yeah. that, that bloom. Um, you know, you always hear, well, I guess the Florida spin, and there's always a Texas spin too, so we don't know what's causing it, but there, there's definitely stuff out there that people know what's causing it. It's just a matter of if there's political will to, to try to fix it. Well, in Florida, what we had this summer is we had record rainfall. Uh, we had we had overtaxed stormwater systems. Uh, we had septic tanks that were below groundwater level. Uh, and we had overflowing, um, you know, uh, impoundment uh, ponds or retention ponds. Uh, and, and then we've got what's coming down from Lake Okeechobee, which is a cesspool uh, for um, agriculture in uh, the middle of the state. And uh, the two rivers that drain out of, of um, Lake Okeechobee were, were bringing... Um, this brown water, these all these nitrates down to the coast, and that's why I argue: don't call it red tide. Um, and when you do, you you um, as I said, you blame nature and you let humans off the hook for it for their own behavior. And it does, you know, Robin, you Rob, you know, it doesn't take a lot to change to fix that behavior to change that behavior, and the benefits that we reap when we do are are phenomenal. Oh, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, as you said, I mean, the recreational aspect of the coast and what it has as far as the bounty is concerned and what it can provide for the entire nation is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And I think we lose sight of that for, like you said earlier, uh, short-term bottom line profits for, for, uh, uh, for a few people instead of thinking about the entire population that lives along the coast. Um, and I mean, I, I, I thank you for this book. I, I can't recommend enough. I can't recommend enough to everyone that's listening and people I've talked to and people I've given copies to. I mean, please read this book. My only, my only, uh, my only complaint, Jack, is that it's not an audible. Come on, man. You gotta, no, it is. Oh, it is now. Okay. I did not know that. Okay. It, it okay. Has been, yeah. Okay. Well, they're great. I have. Uh, if you don't have time to read it, then check it out on Audible, guys. <laughs> the narrator is an Emmy Award winner. Oh, nice. Well, we've got multiple award winners doing that production. That's awesome. I'll check that out for sure on Audible. Um, and uh, so what uh, What kind of projects do you have for the future, man? I mean, and, and also my other question on, on top of that is what exactly do you – do you lecture on at the university if you uh, environmental history uh, that that uh, 
that sounds like a really cool thing. I would love to take at Texas A&M when I was there before they actually offer stuff like that. Yeah, I teach uh, American environmental history, which it looks at the historical relationship between humans and the natural world, not just the human impact on, on nature, but how nature shapes the course of, of history. Um, and uh, which is one thing I, uh, the, the course of human history, which is one thing I emphasize in the book as well. I teach a, a course uh, titled The History of Sustainability. I teach a course uh, titled The History of Water. Uh, and, uh, and a number of other courses at, at UF. And what I'm working on now is the bald eagle. I'm writing a natural and cultural history of the bald eagle. Um, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it's a fascinating um, uh, conservation success story, as, as, as you know. That's one bird I never saw as a kid around the Gulf of Mexico. Now we see them everywhere. Yeah, they're 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 all over the place. In fact, we now have a few in Texas that people are are writing all about and how to find them and stuff like that, which I didn't see as a kid either. So it's amazing. Yeah, and uh, but um, um, but uh, you know, and I go all the way back to um, the uh, uh, native relationship, pre-European native relationship with the bald eagle in North America. It's you know, it's endemic to North America, and the bald eagle doesn't live anywhere else. Um, and um, there are only two eagles that live in North America: the golden eagle and, and, the, and the bald eagle. Uh, and um, but the bald eagle was was adopted as the the national bird in 1782 at a time when American identity was was tied up with uh, the natural endowments of of, of North America. Um, you know, the one thing that the United States could could claim as superior to the European nations um, was was the uh, um, was the natural environment, um, and so I, I'd like to see us uh, reconnect with that that identity. Um, and of course, the, the bald eagle is a bird that everybody loves. I don't care um, whether you're a red, white, and blue American or a tree hugger. <laughs> we all love the the bald eagle. So I and I wanted to write a book uh, that could um, speak to a, an even broader audience than the Gulf of Mexico um, book. Um, and um, uh, so so I'm having fun uh, writing about the bald eagle now. How far along are you? How, when when, when can we expect that book? Yeah, I'm on chapter two. I'm 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 aiming for 2021. Uh, publication. I'm on, I'm on sabbatical next year, so I'll be able to spend uh, all my time on the, on, the, on the eagle. That is awesome. So once again, we are talking about The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea by Jackie Davis. Amazing book. Um, and if you have a chance, please check it out. You can check it out at your local bookstore, at national bookstores, or now that I found out, you can even check it out on Audible. Um, Jack has some uh, events coming up where he'll be at personally. You can talk to him, and I just want to see if he's uh, got any kind of announcements as far as those those upcoming, possibly some in Texas in the fall. Um, so I'm speaking more. Uh, my um, my upcoming ones. I, in fact, this Thursday I'll be speaking at Louis LSU in Baton Rouge. Um, and then I'll be on the 15th of January, I'm speaking in Sarasota at the Selby Public Library. Uh, and uh, on the 17th of January, I'll be at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, and 
uh, speaking, and those are all public events. I've got uh, a couple of dozen uh, this um, uh, this uh, winter and spring, and they're posted on my Facebook page. So you can just it's easy enough to find me on on Facebook. Uh, Texas, I don't have anything for the. I've, I've spoken in uh, Austin three times since the book came out. Oh, nice. Uh, Houston once, and uh, attentively scheduled to speak um, at uh, Texas A&M at Corpus Christi in in the fall of, of 2019. We don't have a date uh, set yet, um, and um, but uh, I'm, I hope that will be confirmed within the next few months. Is that by chance at the Heart Research Institute there, Corpus Christi? Um, I believe that's where it will be, yes. It's a great, great organization. Uh, very good friends with those people, and uh, they, they're a great great asset to the texas coast and it'd be awesome if you spoke there they'd love it so um anyway i would like to thank jack for his time and his patience this has taken a couple weeks to get this together and uh thank you very much jack it's a beautiful book i love it um i'm actually going to download it on audible tonight so i can listen to it at work tomorrow again and uh, i like i said i strongly encourage everyone it's well worth the Pulitzer prize in history um, if you haven't ever read a coastal book, this is the one to start with because it is smooth, it's very well written, and it is a book that anybody can love and enjoy and understand at the same time. So thank you, Jack. Thanks for the kind words and thanks for having me.